Welcome to the final episode of Demol Belkia Season 10 Recap from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Harmstone, and joining me as always is the Canadian who has just put his eye drops in to pretend to cry over the end of the season, Logan Saunders. Good evening. Good evening. I realised when I was editing last week's episode, we didn't actually discuss our weeks last week. So, how have you past two weeks been? Um, <laughs> what have you been up to? Let's see. So, we're... What was the last update? I was in Armenia. So, let's see. I flew from Armenia to Brussels. Stopped in Luxembourg to surprise a friend at her coffee shop. Then I spent three days in Trier, Germany, since that was the nearest German town to Luxembourg. After three days, I took the train back from Germany to Brussels just for the the mall finale, where I saw you there, I believe. You did. Either that or a uh, a very good double of me. (laughs) And then, yeah, spent two nights in Brussels. And then in the morning, I went to the Atomium for about 20 minutes. (laughs) Then I took the train to the airport, flew to Vienna navigated Vienna Transit to go to Gior, Hungary. I was there for two nights. And then on the way back to Vienna Airport, I stopped in Slovakia to see the UFO bridge and the old town uh, area for a few hours and took the bus to the airport, flew from Vienna to Tbilisi, Georgia with a layover in Athens to reunite with GM. And I've now been in Tbilisi for the past four or five nights, and I'm here for another week or so. Awesome. I think it was something like eight countries in seven days I did. <laughs> yeah, it was ludicrous. I was so tired when I... Oh, and that was the funny... <laughs> I haven't told this story in a few days. When I first landed in Tbilisi, immigration line was well over an hour long. I think there were there are a lot of Ukrainian refugees waiting in immigration, so the families are being called up, getting their passports uh, stamped. And then once I cleared through immigration, I was trying to connect to public Wi-Fi to order uh, a bolt, and then the bolt picked me up. It was a guy who was like 400 pounds and about five foot two or five foot three, and he's driving like a maniac on the road through Tbilisi. Speaks about ten words of English. And he's like, sometimes he's not gripping the steering wheel, then he grabs the steering wheel and it's just going left and right and really sharp corners. I'm trying not to fall out of my seat. And then he's like, oh, big problem. And he swerves a couple of streets and he backs into this area that has not a tire shop. It's more like a tire stall. It's like the store that leads into this tiny, tiny kiosk that has just two stacks of about six tires each and then this other guy drives up in the car and he looks to be about 60 years old or so and i was thinking am i being kidnapped and being transferred into another vehicle what's going on because it was it was about five o'clock in the morning and you were at this point getting really worried that your taxi driver and the other guy were maybe having it off in in a hotel or a villa or something (laughs) and then another guy shows up who was also around 60 years old he goes to unlock the this tire kiosk and he's holding the tire pressure gauge and then i finally pieced together that the guy must have a flat tire so he's like 15 minutes problem and then it's more like 20 minutes or close to the half an hour passes by and then they make sure the car is all fine again the guy resumes driving like a maniac through the streets of tbilisi and then I have to navigate up this gigantic hill to where the where the apartment is. I take the long way around. 
and I think it's at this point it's been about three hours since I officially landed in Tbilisi and then a student booked short notice with me where I had to teach in just over three hours so I have a three-hour nap I teach the student and then I fall back asleep for another five hours thinking I did the worst possible thing you could do with jet lag which is sleep for eight hours during the day but before I fell asleep like my journey through Bratislava was still on the same was still the same day very long day then yes i think i was up for 26 or 27 hours from when i woke up in hungary stopped over in slovakia and then took the bus to vienna and then connected through athens on the way to georgia and walked up a gigantic hill with my big you know 20 pound backpack and carried my laptop bag in my hand <laughs> and then i was still able to fall asleep at the proper time and didn't experience the jet lag and then we did a sightseeing the next day and then the day after that, I th I'm like, I'm still really, really tired from doing like eight countries in seven days and, and also the crazy day from the day before. So then I ended up having a big rest day. And now we've had a couple days of, or a couple days of sightseeing and here we are. <laughs> the problem is your adventures make mine in Brussels seem very tame because I realized I didn't tell any of my early Brussels stories like the fact I got accused of shoplifting. Oh yeah, on the yeah, Saturday. right. He told me about that. I just got into Brussels on the uh, on the train from from Schiphol and went to popular supermarket brand Carrefour and was there with my uh, my two bags, just getting some supplies like some orange juice and stuff. And the security guard pulled me to one side when uh, when I'd gone through the cell scanners and uh, asked to look in my bag, and then accused me of shoplifting, and didn't even say sorry when he couldn't prove that I didn't shoplift anything, which I didn't, for the record. I'm not a thief. I also had both the flight attendant on the KLM flight and the immigration agent in, uh, in Schiphol asked me who the mole was. And when I checked into the Brussels hotel and he said, are you here for the uh, the pharmaceutical conference? I said, no, I'm uh, I'm at Palais 12, just directly opposite you for uh, for the mole finale. He said, I have no idea what that is. And then one you don't know is the fact that when I came back through Schiphol last Monday, because when I was flying out of Manchester, they were saying, oh, no, you need to get there three hours early for an international flight because the uh, the queues are horrendous at the moment. We've got nobody on security and the world's going to explode. And it took me about 10 minutes to get through Manchester security. And I'm like, mm, that's nice. At least I can deal with that. I obviously would much rather just walk straight through security, but 10 minutes is neither here nor there. When I came back through Schiphol last Monday, it was two hours and 23. Yikes. <laughs> Yikes is, is a very good word. There were four near fights there were well over a thousand people who were in the security lines because they actually ended up splitting them into two because if you've ever been through Schiphol every other time I've just walked straight past the check-in desks walked straight through the bit where you scan your boarding pass go straight upstairs and go through security usually takes like five or ten minutes and most of that's just walking up to the upstairs bit. The queue stretched from those boarding pass checking gates all the way around the check-in desks, all the way through, all the way through to the other set of check-in desks on, like, maybe half a mile away. <laughs> so you got through that queue, you'd scan your boarding pass, then it was a holding pen where they were letting maybe 10, 20 people through on each side at a time, every maybe 10, 15 minutes. The problem is they had blocked off the staircase and the escalators with those retractable barriers. They had to lift them up for people to to go through when they were letting them through and there was obviously a near stampede every time that happened and the time i got through i kind of snuck through i probably shouldn't have 
but I crawled under, went up to the escalator, but because people's bags were catching on these retractable barriers, it was pulling the metal standing things with it as well, so that caused a, a near crushing. Hundreds of people missed their flights. Thankfully, I didn't. My my plane was delayed by about an hour and 20, I think, presumably because so many people were still stuck in security. It's hilarious, actually, because obviously I've got a smartwatch. We've mentioned that in uh, in the past. And you look at my step count for last Monday, and it sort of categorizes it into afternoon walk or whatever. And you just see at the bottom of it, afternoon run, eight minutes, half a mile. Because that was when I was sprinting from the security place in Schiphol all the way through to the gate, which was literally as far from the security thing as physically possible. Were you flying with Ryanair? (laughs) No, it was KLM. It's the worst airport experience I've had in the best part of 20 years, actually. Since Dubai? (laughs) Well, Abu Dhabi wasn't that bad for security. It was just that bad because everyone was miserable and I had a knackered foot. Um, or knackered feet, actually. But um, yeah, in terms of immigration and security queues, it's the worst I've had since the second time I went to Florida where it was about two hours to get through that immigration, which at the age of 10 is the worst thing in the world. But when you're flying on your own, you really don't want to be doing two and a half hours of security queues. 10 years, uh, if you're 10 years old, that'd be right after 9-11. Yeah. Yeah, it was two, 2003 was the, the second time I flew to Florida, and both 2002 and 2003 when we went, the security queues in when you land in, in Orlando were very much not the happiest place on earth. Whereas this time, it was absolutely fine. It was like about 10, 15 minutes at most. I remember going through the land border at Can- in the Canada-US border after 9-11, the first few years. You were There were a lot of questions for quite a while. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just gone nine years since I did my 11 weeks around America in 2013. And that was right after the Boston bombings and we were flying into Boston. And um, yeah, that was an interesting time to be flying as a uh, as a 20-year-old guy who had a passing resemblance to the Boston bomber. Oh, <laughs> of course. I'd had my hair cut right before we flew, but before I'd had my hair cut, I did have a passing resemblance to him. And it, it was a slight concern for my family that I would get pulled to one side and rubber-gloved it at uh, Logan Airport. (laughs) I need to get some water for some reason. Give me one second. Yeah, you do. You're coughing your lungs up now. Yeah, don't die. Not before the end of the season. No, enough people have been injured on this season of the mall. You can die in like 45 minutes when we finish this episode. I'm the final casualty. Yeah, you are the final victim of the mall. (laughs) (laughs) So just some general housekeeping before we actually get into the reunion. Uh, Last week's episode title was I Can't Stop Crying, I'm So Glad That You Know from Alina's Reveal, presumably when she was speaking to her mum when it was all revealed in their reunion. Jens didn't get 25 out of 25, which does explain his decision to take the pass for Hagen a little bit more. And in fact, we weren't the only ones to um, to fall foul of assuming that the slightly different phrase was that Jens got 25 out of 25. The maximum for the season was 88,750, not 92,750, as I said last week, and that is the perils of doing quick maths. And even worse, I actually had the right number originally, and when we got to my hotel room, I corrected it because I thought I hadn't added the 4,000. Ken, Reed, and Christopher all had Uma at number one of first suspicions, which I can't remember whether I mentioned last week or not. It certainly wasn't in the episode, so congratulations to those guys. You've technically won first suspicions as well, albeit accidentally. And the big one for us, I suppose, is that Natalia's been shut down, kind of. 
Yeah, the second most depressing thing to happen in the mall community this week. Yeah, it wasn't an ideal situation when I found out last week. Obviously, if somehow we can have an influence on this, if anyone from SBS Belkia is listening, please be nice to Natalia. She just provides a public service. Obviously, from our point of view, if she can still provide the subtitle files, that's fine, because we can make do. But yeah, if somehow we can do a positive thing here and get the wolves to back off, shall we say. Yeah, just let the, let the fans be fans. Especially, I mean, if you let this service happen so that Anglophones can watch Belgian Mole, then guess what? That, that's going to open the door to Canadian Mole and UK Mole and other other English versions. Yeah, and I will hold my hands up and say... We are, on this podcast, probably your best ambassadors for this show in terms of the Anglophone community. And I have told a lot of people about your seasons, thanks to Natalia's services. So if that could continue, that would be helpful for all of us involved. Not just me and Logan, but you guys as well. Because it just makes your show more popular. My one lasting memory, as I said on the Balasbar Discord this week of the Mexico season, is probably Gilles' response after our premiere got released and you sent it to him and uh, he replied with, even in Canada they watch me. Like, that is one of the, the abiding podcast memories for me, is that. And without Natalia, we wouldn't have been able to do that. Yeah, and then Jill wouldn't have found out about us and appear on the podcast twice. And the Vietnam finale... Uh, thing wouldn't have happened either and then of course other people that we know of that are now watching Belgian Mole wouldn't have happened without us we wouldn't have known the Trust Nobody podcast people yeah it just opened the store for a huge community because of what Natalia does so it's really disappointing to see that she's being threatened with legal action when she's just being extremely generous and kind to a very hardcore Mole community yeah, obviously we're not going to lecture on this, and obviously we're well aware that there's the people who listen to this probably won't have much impact on it, but if if we can even have a small impact on, on Natalia, at least not being threatened, because she is a solidly good egg, then that would be nice. Yeah, it's disappointing to see. It's not even a production threat. It's a, it's a network threat. So hopefully maybe somebody in production listens to this and goes to the network and says, hey... Natalia's not trying to do anything illicit here. She's just a very generous and kind person to the Anglophones out there who we don't really have any other means of of understanding the context of what's going on in each episode. <laughs> no, I don't think we've actually discussed this, but Netflix a few weeks ago bought the rights to distribute them all in every territory apart from the Netherlands and Belgium, I believe presumably in anticipation of the Insider eventually being a thing. But outside of Natalia, we've really no way to watch this show. And if it is the end for Natalia doing the subtitles, which, I mean, if I was in her position, I probably would jack it in after all the grief she's had. If it's the end, then Natalia, thank you very much. And we will obviously try and find a solution to continue covering this show next year. But bloody hell does it become a bit harder without Natalia. Yeah. Anyway, back to our previously scheduled programming. We return to Palais 12. It looks like the mysterious reversing cars from last week may have just been people arriving as we suspected. I think most of those arrivals happened before we got there. 
I was looking for us because I knew roughly where we were, and I was thinking, there's two guys standing there. Are, th are those two people us? And then I looked closer and realized, no, I was not wearing jeans with the holes in the knees. <laughs> no, I think they probably all arrived before we got there. And we weren't that late. It was about 20 past five. Was it 20 past five we got there? Yeah, it was. Yeah, there is huge lines. Yeah. Everyone reunites backstage, or at least the Eliminated Eight do. Germany Jens thinks that Sven is the mole. Toon thinks that it's Jens. Hethel doesn't know, but plumps for Uma. Bert thinks it's Jens. Naylor says it could be any of them, but goes for Uma. Anka's 100% sure that it's Uma. And Manu thinks it's Sven. Philippe arrives with a big reaction, and he is torn between it being Sven or Uma. Which is interesting, because we're led to believe by the end of this episode that Philippe was briefed on literally everything to do with this season, so surely he knew what the sabotages would have been. I guess not. It's just strange. I presume that he probably knew full well that it was Uma and he couldn't just say, oh yeah, I know exactly what sabotages she did as well. Couldn't he have just said in an interview though, like, I know, don't ask me, get out of my face? I've had enough stress this season. It was unintentionally funny though that when they asked Philippe, oh, who do you think the mole is? He's the only eliminated person who gets frazzled when being asked this question. I thought that was really poetic given how things went for him during the season. It's just PTSD for him. Yeah, he's like, what? Who's the mole? It's not me, is it? Was I supposed to be in the final three? <laughs> he just starts shoving roses in his mouth. Yeah. Was I supposed to learn how to tap dance? <laughs> so the episode title is, Yes, I'm the Mole. You don't know that yet? From Uma's original uh, contestant interview, which is hilarious because she wasn't the mole at that point when she said those things. This was literally as she was in her casting interview, was going, Yeah, I'm the mole. Don't you know? And they've just kind of reversioned it to be, yeah, I'm the mole. You don't know that yet? Gilles does his intro from the Atomium post finale. It's an atypical reunion, one that won't feature the final three, but still has a mole in Philippe. We then see the first, I would say, third of this episode being Philippe's briefings, because he gets his first briefing a month before departure. Gilles tells him it'll pay tribute to the nine seasons that went before as they begin their Jubilee season with a Jubilee challenge. He was very excited on the evening before the first challenge. He deliberately put Cradle with him, as she will rush through things, and that's a good thing. Jens and Manu go in the coffins, because they speak Spanish, as we suspected. And he says that Uma and Naila were the most likely to take the mystery advantage, so they go on the chain. So far, so predictable, I would say, from what we suspected in, in episode one. We obviously got the wrong mole, but so far I think we... We rationalise the mole's decisions pretty well. Yeah, Philippe so far is doing... He's, he's doing okay here. When they moved the cake, one of the roses fell off, which he took, and he also took another while everyone was waiting for the chain. He then took a third in front of everyone, and then admitted it straight after to win himself some trust. He was, contrary to popular belief in the forums, not touching Sven's ass. I was about to say, was he spanking him when he was bringing the cake? No pun intended with the witch... Which cake was he trying to grab there? Philippe has been very, very confused all season. I don't think we mentioned that at the time, that it did look like Philippe was um, was touching Sven's ass. Philippe was very confused about his rule. He didn't know who the special guest was going to be until Jens appeared on the screen. He thought it might have been Mikael, but obviously Mikael still being tangentially involved in the production and actually being given thanks at the end of this episode saw this challenge and went, nope, I am not sitting in a car with a car bomb. He says that he felt guilty because Jens was his hero in the Germany season. 
which is weird because Philippe was there for Jens's elimination, or at least very close to Jens's elimination, because he was one of the fallen nine. Right. Yes, he would have at least been in the cornfield. Which is very interesting. They don't actually mention that Philippe was one of the the intruders and didn't succeed last year. Maybe because it discourages people from trying to look out, look for who the other intruders were and see if all eight are just going to be slowly added in as contestants in the subsequent seasons. Well, they mentioned it at the start of the season. They mentioned it in all of Philippe's interviews that he was one of the uh, one of the intruders, and then they don't mention it in the reunion, which is an interesting choice. I would have thought they would have drawn attention to the fact that Philippe says that Jens was his hero, and then he was like, oh yeah, and I was you know standing off to the side seeing Jens get eliminated. He did all of the astronaut tests beforehand, presumably not the drinking your own urine bit, and said that he used Manu as a partner in crime because she just doesn't stop talking. <laughs> Which, to be fair, I think we did call that out in episode three. <laughs> I think we did say that Manu, Manu was suspicious purely because she just kept talking and kept distracting people. Yeah, the disruption, distraction for people to memorize the information. And then, was there something where, was Philippe supposed to answer the last couple of questions, but Jens went too fast to jump in? Yeah, so he deliberately kept Sven behind him as he was the smartest person. Bert and Anka cock blocked him by sending Sven to the questions first. He was meant to go second, but Jens was the only person who'd seen Moon Landing who got through at that point, so he was sent instead, because Sven accidentally left Moon Landing till last, and... The logical thing was the one person who actually studied that board should probably go over there and answer the question. So he was a bit annoyed at that. Yeah, so this is the first thing to go seriously wrong for Philippe in terms of the sabotages. Yeah. He does say that Naylor was a gift in the Katz's patch as she did all the sabotaging for him. He could literally just sit back and not do anything, apart from laugh a lot. <laughs> yeah. And his high points sabotaging was dropping the eggs in the cooking challenge... They were the essential ingredient for the desserts, and he dropped them under Toon's nose. And then we get some interesting stuff, a lot of which has come out in the interviews in the weeks since Philippe left the game. But he was worried that he was being too obvious, and he just got into his own head, and then he visibly started struggling, and the more that he worried, the less that he slept. He read a note from the crew saying the worst two things that could happen are the mole tots in their sleep, or gets drunk. And on day two, one of those things happened... We see that at High Destiny's dinner in episode 2, Bert told Uma not to write Philippe off, and he shared with her that Philippe talked in his sleep and was disappointed that the team had won money. Bert confronted him, and he denied it, but that then set the paranoia off. Uma then talked Bert out of the suspicion, but the damage at that point was done for Philippe, and he basically didn't sleep after that point. Yeah, he really just got into his own head, because yeah, Bert doesn't even put him down as the mole after this. Uma talks Bird out of the out of suspecting Philippe. Which is quite impressive. Because Bert was very much locked in on Philippe as soon as he started sleep talking. I wonder if that influenced production's decision to make Uma the replacement mole, given that she was convinced persuasive enough to make Bert go from being all in on the mole to completely writing off Philippe as the mole within an episode. Yeah, from what I heard, they said that it wasn't that the interviews for the new mole were fake or whatever, but they already had an idea going into those interviews who they wanted to ask, and Uma's interview convinced them further that they should ask her. So I I really wouldn't be surprised if this was the point where they started getting her in mind going, 
she's probably the most persuasive of the six remaining people. Yeah, because it's crazy that Bert had solid concrete proof that Philippe was the mole. And then he's able to be talked out of it within like 24 hours. In the cycling challenge, Philippe thought he could get his game back on track, but the tyre wouldn't pop properly. He did do it a little bit too late to be able to sabotage it properly. He still managed to make it to the safety point, but that was where he basically cracked and realised that he couldn't do it anymore. And he says that he dreamed about doing the show for so long and he just couldn't go any further. All he could think of when he left was that he was going to be able to sleep now. He doesn't regret doing the show, but he would tell himself to calm down if he could go back. Yeah, we even... we get. We don't. They don't show too much of Philippe's breakdown. Probably more as a move to protect Philippe from any sort of humiliation in front of the audience. But we see him at the painting challenge where Uma keeps asking Philippe, "Like Anka. Philippe, are, are you okay?" Where Anka asks, "I wasn't painted to." I see. I I just went fifty fifty on it because I was thinking I don't want to rewind just to see the hair length. Finally. Eight weeks into this season, I have been mocked so furiously for not knowing which one was Uma and which one was Anka, and finally someone else has done it. <laughs> so Anka asks Philippe, saying, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? Are you okay? You've been hit by, you've been struck by insomnia. Uh, anyway, so a- Anka keeps asking Philippe, ça va? Ça va? You feeling okay, Philippe? So that was, uh, that must have been the sign to production thinking, hmm. Philippe has really mentally checked out of the game. He's a zombie mole. I think it was very sweet that Philippe even said at one point during this episode, thank you so much to everyone who was nice to me when I left. I was really worried about letting the show down and ruining everyone's experience, but thank you for just being so kind. I thought that was very sweet. Yeah, Philippe knows that he could have been treated very, very harshly. Yeah, if Probst was the showrunner, he would have been absolutely mocked in the press. Yeah, if Jeff Probst from Survivor was like, Philippe, what the what the hell are you doing, man? You know what you signed up for. He would have laid Philippe's mole book down. Yeah, <laughs> ripped the pages out of it. We'll bring these pages that I've torn out of Philippe's mole book to every execution just to remind him and remind you guys of the opportunity that you gave up. <laughs> but yes, at least... The mental health aspect is acknowledged, especially for a show as intense as the mole, being the centerpiece of the season and acknowledging, hey, even when going through the whole vetting process to figure out who is the best role for being the mole, that I mean, there's still going to be unforeseen circumstances where that person truly just isn't capable of doing that role. And unfortunately for Philippe, he just, he just couldn't do it. And that's okay. It is, especially coming off the back of the pandemic. It's it's nice to see a show put this sort of stuff front and centre and just basically say to everyone involved, not just the contestants, but the viewers as well, that it's it's okay to not be okay and it's it's okay to to admit that you need help. Yeah, then production just their attitude was okay. We'll pick a new mole, we'll pivot, and we'll just get this season across the finish line. Because having Nayla have to be medically evacuated and Philippe needing to be medically evacuated, they said, okay, we'll just, that's another curveball. Let's figure this way around it. No use complaining over what happened. What happened, happened. 
we still got a show to finish. Viewers still want to watch it. Clearly, 11,000 people were at Palais 12 with us. <laughs> it is absolutely testament to the integrity of this production team that they they handled Philippe's exit so beautifully. It's a real shame for me that I was spoiled on it happening, because obviously it was massive news when it happened. And I think I would have been properly shocked when when that reveal happened. But it's absolutely testament to how good at their jobs these people are. And how tough it is to be the mole. Yeah, because it's the first it's the first proper example we've had of someone struggling to be the mole and struggling to cope with it being not what they expected and the group basically rallying against them. Because it was a, a perfect storm of issues for Philippe here between him sleep talking and then as a result of that he was worried about it, which meant he didn't sleep, which meant the team did better and were able to unite to beat the mole, which is much more of a Dutch attitude than a, a Belgian one. And then he felt ostracized by that and it just spiraled for him there. Yeah, because production could have easily said, okay, we're only going to, in this reunion show, we're just going to focus on what Uma did and pretend like Philippe was never the mole. They did give him the proper respect and say, hey, this is the whole process with Philippe being the mole. This is what happened in the first half of the season. It could have been so much more Uma-centric and they really gave it, because each of them was the mole for exactly half the season. So I'm glad that they each got roughly 50% of the episode dedicated to them. Yeah, uh I mean, it was probably a third each and then a third Germany ends because of the sheer ridiculousness of that story. Yeah. And speaking of, you know, caring for their own moles and the crew, I'm glad to see at the end of the episode they did have a little um, dedication to uh, Aline and Aline and her husband and what they went through right before the finale. Yeah. It's sad every time I see an update on that on Instagram, to be honest. It breaks my heart a little bit every time. So the eliminated eight then go into the stage to find out who Philippe's successor will be. Spoilers, it's Uma. And as predicted, we get to see their reactions to Sven winning and then Uma being revealed as Mole. She says she was shocked that she was chosen. She thought a lot of people would think it would be her. So she came out sad to make them think that she hadn't got it, even though she really wanted it. The funniest part of the reveal is when they, right before they revealed Sven as the winner, Manu is biting her teeth the whole time and literally on the edge of her seat. I think it's fair to say that after that finale last week, you and I weren't entirely high on the season. <laughs> Not on the season as a whole, but obviously it's it's very much one that carried an asterisk. This reunion allayed a lot of my fears. I was much more buoyant on the season as a whole after watching the reunion than I was nine days ago when we were recording our finale recap. Yeah, it still played out. The season was still able to play out, but of course with a couple of gigantic what-ifs. Of course, the big one for the second half is would Anka have won the game if she if her elbow hadn't crapped out on her? Yes. She would. I think, honestly, Jens would have gone at Final 5. Who's Manu on? Manu was on Sven up until Final 4, I think, and then she switched to Jens. Because there was a, yeah, it was a weird situation where it was Manu was on Jens, Sven was on Manu, and Jens was on Sven. So I think Jens would have gone at Final 5, 
and then Manu probably still would have gone at final four. But yeah, Sven would have lost and Anka would have probably got 30 out of 30. Yeah, because all we hear in the finale is Jill saying, well, Anka for sure would have been in the final three. Yeah, she was the only one on the right path. Yeah. <laughs> Jens and Manu, well, I mean, just the way of what the execution could have happened if Jens was executed, would Manu have switched to Ruma? Would she have switched to Anka? Would she have switched to Sven? But Anko definitely would have been in the final three and had the highest probability of winning given that nobody picked Uma as the mole until the final round. Yeah. It's like they're linked to, not only are they linked in appearance, somehow Anko just knew right from the right from the selection that Uma was the mole. It was just a good feeling. It, it goes back to what Yen said in one of the episodes and what Gilles calls back to here. The the new mole was always going to be the person who changed least. And that's what Anka spotted. Anka spotted that Uma didn't really change her personality and didn't really change her demeanor, but she was just messing up a bit more. And then Bert was saved by Nailus quit, right? Yeah, Bert was saved by Nailus quit. Yeah, Bert goes from being right on Philippe to being as far away as possible from being on Philippe to Uma being picked as the mole and just not thinking there's even a possibility that Uma could be the mole. No, and Manu was only saved by her past Fragen when Bert went home as well. Yeah, it's it's just a very interesting season of people being on the right path and then talking themselves out of it and being as far away in left field as possible. And in a throwback to Vietnam, each evening she got briefed on the next day's assignments, including when they were camping at Final Four. The candidates would look, as Yen said in the episode, for who changed the most, so it's important that she simultaneously messed up while still being the same Uma that she was in the first four episodes. She says she was shocked she was so trusted in the paintball game. Nobody trusted her before Philippe left. She subverted the expectations of them all by picking past Fragen rather than money, which stayed true to her pre-Philippe personality of always taking personal advantages when she got the choice. And she was, was she intentionally trying to be a bad liar in that paintball challenge too? I'm not sure. I think from what she said, she assumed that Manu would shoot everyone no matter what. But she didn't want to gamble on her not shooting her in case she took money and then that money went into the pot. So she just took the pass for Oregon to be safe. And then I think when she found out that Anka was onto her as the mole, that she severed her elbow joint before the jump. Yeah, she um, she severed one of the bungee cords just to make sure that Anka couldn't, um, Anka couldn't win. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a pretty big sabotage. And the boys didn't suspect her at final six, but was on Sven, Jens was on Bert, Sven was on Manu. Uma apparently had a problem with right answers in the banana field, she deliberately got them wrong, and she wanted to try and scan wrong bananas with the highest value, but she was just too slow on the Bert and Ernie question. In the time loop challenge, her role was to make sure they didn't get the crucial information hidden in the bomb room quickly. She cleaned slowly and carefully so the clues weren't revealed. The repeated explosions made me laugh so much. <laughs> repeated explosions are brilliant but so is her wearing new trousers that day which made Manu think that it wasn't her because a mole wouldn't do that if if they knew that they were going to get paint bomb repeatedly that's clever I like that a lot yeah that's something that your Rowan would never think of from Vidim there's a lot of things that your Rowan wouldn't think of like competence or actual sabotages in the offering challenge, she took advantage of Jens not knowing the nuances of the whistles and just went with Jens's wrong answers. She played it like a candidate who was suspecting Jens. 
Yes, I think that's the one thing that made me suspect Uma there towards the end was she's letting Jens take a lot of heat, and that's what bumped her up to number one on my suspect list. I'm really gutted because when I watched that challenge, I was really suspicious of the extra whistles. And I didn't say it on the podcast because I went back and checked. I was so suspicious that they told us who the mole was during that challenge with the whistles because I heard the two extra whistles. So I'm really frustrated that ended up being a clue because it's basically the same as the dog whistle from last season. So annoying. I knew those whistles were a clue, but obviously I was never going to be be learning the nuances of the whistles to work out who it was. She said that she knew that Manu had lied about her stakes being minus a thousand euros on the wheel of breakages. Otherwise, she wouldn't have jumped. And she acted scared on the jump to put Manu off, which was clever. On the bomb defusing, she cost the group two thousand euros, forgetting, of course, that Jens cost the group like five. Sven insisted on climbing as she was his prime suspect. She intended on making sure that she was the one to cut the wire, but he didn't trust her or her suggestions, and she used that against him and made him let her cut the wrong wire. We then get a wonderful scene of their practices for the live spectacular challenge, and Jens being hung upside down from a tractor. (laughs) Showtime. Which they didn't talk about at all, but seemingly the only way they could mimic him hanging from Palais 12 was to take him to a farm and hang him upside down from a tractor. I, I guess they wanted to avoid any spoilers. Yeah, but there's spoilers, and then there's... Renting out farm equipment. She deliberately made three mistakes on the drumming. As she said in the episode, she could have done better. And it went perfectly in the dress rehearsal. Then we get three absolutely terrible hidden clues. Yeah. I don't like any of these three. This was the astrology sign, the whistling, and... The other one was the fact that the first thing we see in episode five is them fading down to a church. Because she's a religion teacher. Oh, I think the Peter clue was a lot more obvious in Mexico. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That clue just makes me think back to you in Mexico going, oh no, it can't be Peter, that's just Mexico with all its religious imagery. (laughs) So I am burned by those clues. I would have got a very long streak on on Mexico if it wasn't for you talking me out of it like you're Uma and I'm Bert. But yeah, in episode 3, we saw a night sky over Arecife with one recognisable constellation visible, which was Sagittarius, Philippe's star sign. Then we get the first scene descending from heaven in episode 5 to show a church, which is a reference to the profession of the new mole, a religion teacher. And in episode 7, we heard two extra whistles telling us that Uma is the mole. The whistle guy was, of course, one of my favourite NPCs of the entire season, with him shushing the, uh, the camera. This season really had three moles. We had Philippe, Uma, and Uma's partner. Well, we had Philippe, Uma, Davy, and also Anka's elbow. <laughs> Sabotage. It's like seeing them hiding in the background. I'm going to make everyone miserable by ensuring Anka doesn't win and snap her elbow into two. And then we get on to my favourite bit of the entire episode, which is, of course, the prolonged adventures of Germany Jens. Because, oh my days, they had so much fun with him. They made him do all of the pre-game stuff. Just the story of how they got him into the paint bomb warmed my cold dead heart. Because he was told that he needed to leave for the Mosul a day early, and to repay Chewie for sending him there, he had to bring his cooker clock for a photo shoot, 
he was also told he had to put said cuckoo clock in his hand luggage and had to pull it out every time he went through a security scanner because it had metal in it. That's really mean to do to him. He was, as we saw, told he had to go via Lanzarote and would be staying overnight there before flying on with his photographer Camille. He rang his girlfriend Shana in the departure lounge, who reassured him everything will be fine, don't worry. We then see Gilles tell Shana that Jens is going on another season, and he can't know about it beforehand, and she has to keep that secret for two whole months from him. It's just so funny with the cuckoo clock here. Like, both of us have tons of experience with airports, but they always say, oh, take out any uh, power banks, laptops, uh, liquids, and cuckoo clocks. Yeah, have you got anything suspicious in there? Anything that might make your bag go to the other lane and you have to wait 20 minutes at security. Like, yeah, I've got a um, a genuine German cuckoo clock that I'm returning to the Mosul for some reason. It would have been funny if the person who puts it through the scanner says, oh, there's a rice jelly inside. The absolute best bit of this entire episode for me, though, is Shana's reaction to being told by Jill that Jens is getting a second chance. Because she is heartwarmed. It's so sweet to see how much a second chance would mean to not just him, but Shana as well. A chance to actually get eliminated from the mould on his own terms, rather than it basically being potluck. Well, not on on his own terms. He had to share that elimination with Toon. No, but he actually saw a red screen this time. If you go back to the Germany reunion, Gilles does tell us that Jens was one of many people who tied on 1 out of 5, and he was just the slowest person. Camille told him that they had to change taxis as the driver needed his car back. She had a connection with the driver, so he assumed that when the taxi driver got out and then Camille got out to go to the bathroom a couple of minutes later, that they were probably going for a quickie. Even though he connected his exit with the everybody knows cover by Sigrid, he still ignored the phone twice, which we didn't see in the original episode. I think just such a bizarre coincidence to think like, oh man, what show am I on? <laughs> the thing that interested me is it said that the last call when it was ringing with for Jens Sutterman, it said the last call was 8.23am. And it said the same thing when he missed the, the first call as well. So that challenge must have been super early in the morning. Because he was the last stage of it, if you think. And yet everyone didn't reunite until the evening, because it was dark by the time that Jens actually joined the group. So there's a lot of time missing on day one. Maybe a lot of production briefings for the cast? Yeah, I don't know. Because they weren't reunited until it had already gone dark in, in the Canary Islands, which was, at that time of year, probably at least 6, 7 o'clock in the evening. Yeah. Maybe maybe 5 o'clock? It was certainly a long period of time between Jens getting his first call and the reuniting. They duped Jens with an interview with the relationship coach for a program called The Role of My Life. He also met Frank Fuckertain, and they sent him for a cycling assessment. And his exemption was painted to look like the back of a clock, so it wasn't as suspicious as it could have been. It is implausible that he didn't spot it as a carpenter, but he says that it was real craftsmanship. And one thing I do have to mention on this is the fact that Jens really had to hit that board to get the exemption out to show us it. And Uma would have had to hit it harder because it would have been varnished a couple of times before that, so it would have been properly stuck in. So I have no idea how nobody didn't hear her hitting her hand on the back of that repeatedly. 
So we then find out that Sven, Naylor and Bert were all suspected in episode one. Germany enters on Bert, Bert was on Naylor, Toon was on Sven, but Germany enters was the top suspect for most people. Bert was suspicious of Philippe after he sleep-talking, and Kratel went home, suspecting Uma, ironically. Yeah. She was a bit early on it. <laughs> Four more episodes, she would have sailed through to the finale. Uh, no, nah, she probably would have broken an elbow or a kneecap. Yeah, there's no way that she would have done the, the cliff jump without dying. As Toon says later in the episode, they'll be reminiscing about their adventure in 20 years' time around a campfire, even if Kratel is in a wheelchair. Which, she would be like 70. She's not that old. She's not Hugo. Uma and Bert went all in on Jens, and only just beat Jens and Toon. They filled in their test on five random people, and went home as a result of it. So I guess none of the five were Philippe? No. We saw that they suspected, I think it was Sven and Bert. It was definitely Sven and someone else that they said in the episode they suspected. And then they probably would have mixed in at least two of the women in there to balance it out. Let's just say for argument's sake, they probably suspected Uma. It's just easier. <laughs> on the third elimination, Bert went all in on Uma as a result of her convincing him to suspect Germany Jens, and he had the worst score as a result. He would have gone home had Naylor not quit. After three episodes, only Uma was on Philippe. She suspected that him looking unwell was because the team was doing so well. Manu treated Philippe's exit as an exemption, as she never would have suspected him. And then, as we said, after the changeover, Anka was the only person who was actually on Uma. Yeah, and Uma, it's kind of funny that Uma got picked to be the new mole, as she was the only one who was on to Philippe when he left the game. So maybe that helped make production's decision too, thinking, well, Uma kind of was the unofficial winner here at the end of round four, or at the end of round three, I should say, considering they didn't have a round four quiz. So let's make her the new mole, since she was the one most locked into what's going on. Manu did the worst on that test by suspecting Jens, but her past Fargan saved her. Bert was on Sven and went home instead. And then in episode 6, it was becoming increasingly obvious to Anka, but her injury was the thing that sent her home. At final four, Yen suspected Sven, Sven suspected Manu, and Manu suspected Jens, but then went home suspecting Sven. Sven's top suspect going home forced him to suspect Uma in the end. He followed his head, not his gut for once. Jens did his first 25 questions on Sven, but switched to Uma for the last five. And most importantly, Sven also switched for the last five, meaning that his first 25 questions were all that won the season for him. It's the first time we've ever had a winner who has not correctly picked the mole in the final question, who is the mole? Wow, I didn't know that part of it, that the, the mole was unmasked, but not... Basically, by the sound of things, Sven suspected Uma in Lagonera, Yen suspected Sven, they both went home, watched the episodes, and completely swapped their suspects. That is fascinating. At the end of this crazy, crazy season, you finally got the answer to to a question you've been asking for years. What happens if the winner doesn't unmask them all? Well, it was, it's, it's different because it's still... It wasn't zero out of 30. It was 20... It was... Did Sven get all 25 right? Because no one's ever gotten perfect 30 out of 30 on the quiz, so I assume he wouldn't have gotten a perfect 25 out of 25. 
we know Yen's got five out of 30 because he got the final five questions right. And as we said last week, those final five questions were very easy if you knew where Uma was. Yeah. So Sven, let's say, got 23 out of 25 and then would have whiffed on the last five. So, I mean, 23 out of 30 isn't the worst winning score ever. <laughs> no, but it comes with a caveat of he actually got the who is the mole question wrong in the end. Yeah, but it's got to be a bit different where like both... It's all such a bizarre situation because it's not that they both completely missed out on who the mole was. It was more that they split the final quiz. <laughs> so Anka for sure would have won this season then if she didn't, if her elbow didn't crap out on Yeah, if Anka was confident enough, she probably would have got full marks on that test. That's fascinating though that they watched the episodes and because this is the only finale where that's happened where where they get to watch all the episodes before they finish the last five questions on the quiz. So it's, I can't help but dissect that they both second-guess themselves on the last five questions. This season, I think, accidentally has ended up basically being the ORG version of Demol Belkia, in that literally everything you can think of has happened. We've had a returning contestant, which they would never do normally. We've had three exits outside of an execution, two of which were medical evacuations, and one of which was the mole being medically evacuated because of mental health worries. You have a live finale at the end, which they never do normally, but on top of that, you have a split final test where they do the final questions in the live finale, and they switch their suspects, and as a result, the winner of the season doesn't correctly pick the mole in the end. That's fascinating. Yeah, the fact that it was a split quiz for both of them. Neither mm. of them were confident enough after watching the episodes to stick with who they thought was the mole originally. So no one got a perfect score, but no one got shut out on the final test either, which goes against all strategy. <laughs> I'll also say, when I first watched this episode, I watched it without subtitles because I wasn't sure whether Natalia was going to be doing this subs this week. And I didn't pick up on that nuance. It was only when I rewatched it with Natalia's subtitles last night that I then picked up on the fact that they'd swapped suspects. Yeah, because the big thing is, once you get to Final Four, you're supposed to go all in on one person and never waver. You're not supposed to. The absolute worst strategy is to split your quiz at Final Four or Final Three. And even at Final Five, it's considered risky if you're splitting between two people. Oh yeah, if you look at our weekly suspicions, that's roughly the number of people you should be suspecting each week. Yeah. Because that's based on seasons and seasons and seasons of our watching it and theorising on how many people you should be suspecting in each episode. The rough rule is it's a third of the cast rounded up. So if you have ten people left after week one, you can kind of get away with three or four suspects. When you're getting down to like final five you should be going one or two, definitely. Obviously, in a season like this, the rules kind of go out the window because it's two half seasons. Yeah, I'm just, I'm still trying to think. How do you go from, I can't think of a time ever where somebody splits on the final quiz. And when it happens, it's in one specific season where both candidates do it in the on the final quiz 
and it's the season where the mole got replaced halfway through and where they got to watch the episodes before they finished the final quiz. So it makes you think, if they didn't watch through all those episodes, presumably they would just have gone full ticket for the, all 30 questions. Yeah, and it would have been potentially a 30 nil victory for Sven. Instead, it's this weird 23 to 5 score, 23 or 24 versus 5 points on the final quiz. That's a bizarre finish. It's probably a saving grace for production that the winner of the season ended up being the winner of the season after the final test on location. So even if they'd run it as a normal reveal and had, I don't know, Sven's light just turn back on and then I don't even know what atmospheric location they would have had him a walk from. Even if they'd done it normally, everything still would have happened the same way. It just ended up with a little bit of fuckery at the end for one of a better term. Yeah, I'm just and what's even more fascinating too, with the end switching to Uma for the last five questions, he answers the question correctly, who is the mole? And loses it to somebody who did not answer who is the mole correctly at the end of the quiz. <laughs> yeah. Which has never happened on any version before, to my knowledge. No, well there's no way. Because you're going to go straight ticket no matter what. Every person ever has gone straight ticket on the final quiz. Yeah. It's just super fascinating that this is a thing. That, that's how it ended. It's it's even more... I don't even think that a season could end like this where it's not two people failing to unmask them all. It's the quiz gets split up and both people second-guess themselves based on the episodes. One person switches to the correct mole on the last few questions and the other person second guesses themselves but still wins because the majority of the quiz took place on location. So Uma was told the night before he arrived that she could tell David that she was the mole and that he would need to help her in the next challenge. He went searching for tubes to swap under the noses of the other loved ones. He moved a 10 euro tube to a 1000 euro spot which Mary Sophie banked. He also swapped 500 euro tubes for 10 euro ones and threw the 1000 ones away. Uma slowed down the candidates, as the longer she wasted, the later they would find out about the mole's accomplice, and the more damage that Davy could do. He was also in the abandoned building for real, and actually helped people deliberately so they would trust him. The plan was for her to get two buttons and then get shot, which is exactly what happened, and she used eye drops to pretend to cry while no one was watching, and also Davy had a lot of fun messing with the others in that challenge. We find out thanks to the fact we've actually got it written down now that Sven is opening a petting zoo with his €26,000 winnings. Toon says he hopes that they will be reminiscing in 20 years around a campfire, even if Cradle is in a wheelchair, which, you know, I know she's old to you, Toon, but she ain't that old. Yeah. I think she would still be younger than Logan's parents. (laughs) Anka says she's disappointed that she was on the right track, but she will get into Sven's petting zoo for free and make sure that he names an animal after her which could horribly backfire if he names an ass after her. And Jens's mum told him that he couldn't wear his ridiculous clothing on the mole. He did anyway, and now she's seen the season, she's happy that he expressed himself. And we finish the season, as we probably should, with an interview with both moles. Yeah, the proper respect is there for Philippe. He was there for half the season. Yeah. I think it is only right, from our point of view, that that is our banner this week of them looking at each other at the end. It's only right we pay 
proper tribute to the moles of this season and do it like that. How how would you remember this season? I'm not going to say how would you rank it necessarily. Yeah, give me a couple more. Give me a couple months to rank this season. Yeah, it's the strange one. It's it was always going to be a season with an asterisk. I was thinking though before I read everyone else's opinions, my idea was above uh, Mexico and maybe above Greece too, but most likely probably above Mexico and then below the other seasons. But that could change in a few months. It's definitely an A-minus season for me. I think I probably would at the moment put it below Mexico, but I think if I rewatch it in a couple of months, knowing what's to come, and, and like we do for historians, looking at it in a different way, I think it probably then will go over Mexico. But it's not a bad season, even despite all the all the issues that they had with it. It's a case study. It's absolutely a season that I never want any of that sort of stuff to get repeated. I don't want a mole getting replaced mid-season. I don't want so many medivacs. I don't want any medivacs, because it's obviously terrible when it happens to anyone. I don't want someone at the end to win the season answering who the mole is wrong. But it's fascinating when it happens once. Yeah, and we saw what happens when you have a returning, just one returning player mixed in with everybody else, and a returning player who didn't even know they were returning until they were already in the game. And, of course, the mole being replaced, two medical evacuations that tied Destiny's execution twist, and what happens if you split up the final quiz over several months, and what happens if you have a lot, try to do a live finale too, where the test is interactive with the audience, or the, or the challenge is interactive with the audience, it answers a lot of scenarios that people have been wanting to see for over 20 years, and then it's like, here you go. This is a very, very weird, unusual season. This is how a production team responds to a lot of bizarre circumstances, and these are how contestants respond to these bizarre circumstances, too. Yeah, it's utterly fascinating, but I never want this stuff to happen again. Just for their sanity's sake... I want them to have a nice, easy season next year in a location that is fascinating, culturally brilliant, and just kind of get them back on track a little bit. That's what I want. This season will definitely be remembered. (laughs) Yeah. No matter what, it will definitely be remembered. (laughs) Because Argentina and maybe South Africa get clumped as a duo together. Um, Greece and Germany, of course, gets could get, get clumped together over time. Some of the Venom seasons blur together based on who's hosting. Canary Islands of Belgian Mole will never be clumped in with any other season. No, the fascinating thing for me is the fact that nobody ever really talked about Argentina and South Africa being a pair until we did Historians. But I always would say Argentina and South Africa are a pair. Mexico standalone, Vietnam standalone, Greece is standalone. Then Germany and and Canary Islands are kind of a pair because of the story of Jens and the history repeating itself in in that respect. But the fact of the matter is, no matter what, Canary Islands will be the most memorable season of Belgian Mole ever, probably. You'd hope. How more unusual of a season can you get? Like, Jill DeCosta would have to murder somebody on the season for it to stick out even more. <laughs> no, I'm just picturing like, Jill DeCosta with the lightsaber. <laughs> 
interestingly, in terms of percentage of money in the pot out of the maximum, Uma is actually third lowest. She managed to only put 21.2% of the of the pot in in her half of the season. Alina is 19.2 and Lena is 18.1. Both of those have kind of caveats attached to them. Lena has the 10,000 euro bid and Alina has the double your money challenge at the end. A lot of the older moles hover around 25%. Philippe's was 39.3, which is only just behind Elizabeth's 39.4. But the other ones are sort of in the 26 to 28% range. Peter's 26.8, Van Bull is 28.6, and Aline is 28.7. I gotta say, Peter's the least memorable mole for me for the Belgian version. Yeah, I mean, we've we talked Mexico at length, didn't we? But yeah, I would agree. <laughs> so the question now is the question I've been waiting to ask for months: What's next? Because obviously this season has now finished, but we're not exactly going away. Annoyingly for me, uh, if you saw any of my reactions on uh, on Twitter last weekend, you'll know that Hunted is coming back on Sunday, much to my irritation because Sundays is the worst day for it to come back for us and uh, they kind of sprung it on us so Hunted is back on Sunday Aunt Michelle and I will be back for Hunted in some capacity I'm not sure what days it will be yet it's probably likely to be Saturday's release day but keep an eye out on social media for that because we will confirm it a bit nearer the time I'm not sure if we're doing episodes one and two separately yet we've uh, we've not made that decision between us and to be fair, we probably won't make that decision until sort of Saturday. After that, there is really no rest for the wicket because we have three more historian seasons coming this year. One of which we've teased very, very heavily as one that absolutely holds up on a rewatch. And um, our Patreons on the historians tale will know exactly what I'm about to say next because coming at the end of June, it was going to be slightly earlier if uh, if Unsid hadn't come back, but the current pencil-in date, um, subject to change, is the 29th of June. You will be able to rewatch with us Vs to Mole Japan. Huzzah. Huzzah. I'm very, very excited. I'm, I've edited the first three episodes now, and we are hopefully in the next couple of weeks going to absolutely blitz the rest of the season. Yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow we'll be recording episode five. Vidum Japan is our next project, and... Boy, does it hold up on a rewatch. Fritz Sissing is the mole. We have a lot of fun with this season. And after that, we won't be taking any sort of break because I think it's now actually going to overlap with uh, with Vidim Chan slightly. But after that will be our Amazing Race season, which this year, in honour of its 10th anniversary, is going to be Amazing Race Australia 2. And then coming in November is Mr. Mole Hong Kong and Philippines which are obviously two places that you know rather well. And that will also be our season where Logan will be playing along with my suspect list from the time, which I'm very excited about because I'm interested to see if you get them all before I do on that season. Should be interesting. It's going to be a very fun one. And I think, uh, as it stands, Bindles will be joining us for at least some of that season as well. Ooh. Assuming the timings line up. The one other thing that I do have to mention is something that we completely will not acknowledge on uh, currently June 29th, but the next episode that we release that you are on is your 350th. Ooh. 
another milestone. Will that be Vidim Japan's premiere? We will see for now, because it's not out of the question that this won't be the last Belgian Mole episode of the year. That's right. That's right. And we're going to leave it at that, because I will end up spoiling what, what we're here to get there, if I don't. <laughs> Have you got anything else to say about this season? No, I think I'm ready to close this chapter before I fall down, my elbow breaks, or I develop insomnia. Yeah, please don't. So, thank you for listening to our Demol Belkia Season 10 recaps all season long. We'll be back in June to begin the hunt for an old mole in Japan. Don't forget, you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, where we are RTV Warriors, or you can email us and contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan is on Twitter at Logsofquacky, and I am MJ Harmstone. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rtvwarriors. Thank you, as always, to Natalia for the subtitles. We'll see you in June for VS to Mole Japan. Peace out, and just chill till the next season. Trust. It's bullshit, Malushka. Nobody.